as we're going into this season, a lot of times this is the time of the year where people start to plan their vacations. Anybody looking forward to a little getaway sometime this summer or the fall or something, a honeymoon or something that you're looking forward to, uh, something uh, already marked on the calendar. For us, we're really excited. We followed Chad and Erica's lead last year because what they did is they worked with this Alaskan Airlines credit cards that have a free companion pass, and one of the spots that they fly to is Hawaii. So we're, we have, uh, in November, we're very excited about this. For the price of two tickets, we're flying our whole family there, five of us, so pretty excited. If you want uh, clues on how to do that, uh, you can chat with me after the service. But I was thinking about it, what, what, is it, what is it that we appreciate or value about vacations? For some of us, it's the beautiful location. For some of us, it's the fun activities. For some of us, it's the extra time with family. Anybody enjoy that aspect? Or some of us, like if we're honest, we can just say, I just like the excuse to eat more than I ever do every single day of the vacation. So trying new restaurants, maybe not cooking. Uh, some of you moms might appreciate that. For me, though, I was thinking about that. What, at, the, at the root of what I appreciate most about vacations is to step away completely from any responsibility. Anybody love that part too? There, there's there's no, no weight on your shoulder. There's nothing you're... It really, it's just coming down to should I hang by the pool or should I snorkel today? You know, like those, those decisions I'm okay with. Like, But the weight of trying to... Should we fix the church roof or the parking lot? Like all that stuff, like you get to put on the, the shelf and relax from that. It's a wonderful blessing. And as I was thinking about that, what we love about vacations, I think says something about at the root of what God had in store for us when he made this, this invitation. I wanted to point to this. You're maybe familiar with in John uh, chapter 10. Uh, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Having life abundantly. I, I'm not suggesting that he's invited us to be on a permanent vacation, but I think the idea of the more and more we surrender our life to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ over it, the more and more we experience that abundant life. There's, there, there's abundance on the other side of surrender. I would suggest in the same way that we long for vacations because we get to take the responsibility hat off, I think there's freedom in surrender because we can say, hey, this wasn't meant to be something, a weight that I carry. It's something I get to turn over to the Lord. And what a beautiful thing. I think often we look at the exact opposite side of surrender of like, oh, man, I don't want to give this up. I don't want to give that up. But I would suggest, man, there's the opposite spin on that. There's freedom in turning over the reins to a perfect, loving God that wants nothing more than for you to experience life in its abundance. Let me pray before we dive into this passage. God, we come to you right now this morning, and really, we, we want that, we desire that, an abundant life where we take the, the weight off of the responsibilities that we aren't intended to carry. We could get back to the things that are within our control and submit everything else to you. What a beautiful thing that is. God, I pray that you teach us through this text this morning that has some wonderful clues about surrender in it. 
what that actually looks like, that you'd speak to us, that you'd stretch us in our understanding of this even this morning. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're working through, if you've been here, you know this, through this wonderful book of Acts, and we're in chapter 16 starting this morning, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses, and really in those 10 verses, we're going to get a chance to see the scope of surrender on display through some of the different characters in this account. Remember, this isn't a letter written with a big theme. and In fact, instead, it's an account, a historic account of the early church. And so we pick up things, observations from the text as we learn about the early church. And this one, a running theme I see throughout is the idea of surrender. We're going to start with the first section, first three verses, and looking at surrendering writes verse 1 of chapter 16 you have a bible in the chair in front of you if you didn't bring one or you can use your new app it's also there paul came also to derby and to lystra a disciple that was there named timothy the son of a jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a greek who was well spoken of by the brothers at lystra and iconium paul wanted timothy to accompany him And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right, we're going to stop there just for a moment. And really to catch us up on what's happening in the story of Acts. Remember, we just had this pretty intense parting of ways between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas went different directions. Paul picked up Silas as a new partner and uh, going out on this mission adventure. And the first missionary journey, if you remember, was to start and to plant churches. This one is coming back to this, those churches to encourage them and build them up and allow them to reach their full redemptive potential. So uh, building in or investing in existing churches. So they're going out and they're traveling by foot. This one, this time, their route isn't by sea. They're going by foot and really heading first to the Tarsus, which was Paul's original hometown, and kind of going to these different cities where churches were planted. You got to believe that those churches in Tarsus and the area around that were planted during the time before he went to help out Barnabas and Antioch, so Cilicia and Syria, and now going to Derby and Lystra. If you're here in our account walking through that, you might remember some of those cities. So he's showing up back at those, and we're introduced to one of the new characters in the ongoing dialogue in Acts, and his name is Timothy. Timothy is believed to be between ages 18 and 21 upon this encounter, and he's a newer believer because all of them would be newer believers in that area of Lystra. So we're introduced to him, and it's a friendship that starts that goes on the rest of Paul's Life And in fact, in 1 Timothy 1-2, he refers to Timothy as a true son in the faith. So a true son in the faith. So here we see that there's something in Timothy that Paul saw that he didn't see in John Mark, right? Remember, John Mark was the one that he's like, we are not bringing him on this missionary journey. But instead, he's inviting Timothy to come along just right out of the gate. So what is it that he saw in Timothy that he didn't see in John Mark? I would say there's a couple things. The big idea, though, is he had kind of a whatever it takes mentality. It's evidence in two specific ways. First off, the town of Lystra. Anybody remember what happened the last time Paul was in Lystra? 
He was literally, he, he healed a man, which was pretty awesome. Then they celebrated him like a god. Do you remember this? And trying to celebrate him. And then he's like, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. And instead, the crowd's attention turned from celebrating him to literally stoning him until they thought he was dead. So this was his last experience in Lister. You remember that account was pretty intense. But here he's heading back to that city. So if Timothy's coming with him, he's got a little bit of crazy factor in him, right? Because he's like, man, last time he was in my town, he was stoned, and I'm going to choose to go with him on this adventure. So there's a little bit of whatever it takes kind of mentality in Timothy. The second thing that I noticed, verse 3, what does it say that Paul did with Timothy? Verse 3, 18 to 21 years old, he took him and circumcised him. All right, so, so if you think you've given up a lot for your job, like, the, 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 like the, this guy, like he's for sure legit committed to go into the, into, onto the front lines, first going with a guy that was previously stoned in your town and not stoned in a bad way, and uh, going with him, and you're like, all right, whatever it takes, circumcision as an adult and what you read that and you're just like what in the world why would that even be in the on the table like why is that even part of the 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 prerequisites for Paul hanging out with him didn't we just in chapter 15 you're like Paul didn't you read chapter 15 in chapter 15 Paul went to bat back in Jerusalem to come to the conclusion that literally there's no prerequisites for salvation circumcision was not a requirement. They kind of came to that conclusion is by grace alone, through faith alone. They came to that conclusion. So why is he being circumcised here? Is Paul just appeasing the legalist? Little backstory back, back here to understand things as he, even we point to here, had a Jewish mom that pointed him to Christ and a Gentile father. So according to Jewish law, he would have been seen as an illegitimate child, an illegitimate child. So circumcision was a key way of pointing or acknowledging that he was choosing to follow his Jewish roots rather than his Gentile roots. And so if they're going to go out on the mission field, that was going to be a legit obstacle to the gospel going out. Thinking about that, you're like, well, why did it? Why did he do that? I would say it's something like this. He's choosing to say, I'm going to elevate the gospel going out and no obstacles to that over my rights, over my rights. They could have gone on this journey in every single town they came to. They could have dug in their heels. That could have been the main focus of their battle. Do you see what I'm saying? It could have been an anti-circumcision admission. You know what I mean? Like that could have been their, their but instead they said, no, we, we have one thing that we're called to do is to get the love of Jesus Christ out to people. What if we spent less energy opposing the culture? What if we spent less energy opposing the culture instead of, uh, and more energy on trying to reach them with the love of Jesus Christ? I think there's something to be learned with that even present day. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. Think about Paul and his words as he described that. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, you might be familiar with this passage. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant all, that I might win more of them. 
to the Jews. I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. He continues on. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might have might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you see that priority being elevated over his personal rights? You think about that present day. Missionaries do that all the time. Make adjustments to accommodate so they can effectively minister. I remember some, some years back going to, to Kenya. Uh, we had a, a group, a team that was going there, and they had a a checklist of things that we had to bring. If you've ever been on a missions trip, you get these lists of kind of uh, to bring items and not to bring items and dress. One of the, in this particular one had a kind of a dress code. And we remember the whole team being kind of uh, frustrated because all week it was supposed to be over 100 degrees there. And every day you're supposed to wear pants and a shirt. And then on Sunday, they asked specifically for the pastor of the group, which was me, to wear a suit in a tie, full jacket. I don't even do that on Easter Sunday here. You know, you're like, I remember getting that and I, I can't say I had the best attitude about it. Well, it wasn't real great. It wasn't me just, oh, look, I willingly gave up my rights. It was me like begrudgingly. But it's interesting because when we finally got there and we experienced it and I'm up there sharing from up front and every single leader had on a suit and tie. I don't know how they didn't sweat in a hundred degree weather. It made no sense. I was just pouring. But I realized if I tried to, it wasn't going to be me that all of a sudden was the one to change that entire culture. And did I really want that to be the focus of my ministry or mission there? Absolutely not. For us, as we're engaging in our world and our culture, part of it has to do with submitting our rights, elevating others before ourselves. And here, you think about this moment of surrender for Timothy set the course for the rest of his life. From that day forward, going on into ministry and impact, started with this point of sacrifice. Continue on. So surrendering rights, also surrendering efforts. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's talk about that for a moment, what was happening. What was the decision? Anybody remember, what was the decision that was made in Jerusalem? We just covered that a couple weeks ago. The decision was that there's no prerequisites for salvation. You didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't. So he, they're making sure that they're sharing this amazing news that it's by faith alone, by grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone. That's the one route to salvation. So this was a big deal. They're making sure that all of their audiences are clear that we're done with human effort to try to appease a perfect God. We're done with human effort on an attempt to try to appease a perfect God, we get to say we're, we're finished with that. And that, if you think about it present day, is still the appeal that we invite people to still today. But we're in a culture that loves to celebrate 
human effort. You can do it. You're the, do you guys remember this trend for a while with the, these motivational posters? Do you remember some of the different ones that were, a lot of people had them maybe? If anybody ever have one in your office hanging up a motivational poster? It's not a shaming event. Here's an example of one if you don't know. Determination. To those who understand the power of determination, unlikely does not mean impossible. <laughs> unlikely does not mean impossible. Like beautiful, like driving, uh, passionate things. Has anybody seen some of the opposite spectrum, the demotivational posters? Have you seen some of these? Adversity, that, that which does not kill me postpones the inevitable. Uh, how about this, this next one? Distinction, looking sharp is easy when you haven't done any work. I like that one. Another one, mediocrity, it takes a lot less time and most people won't notice the difference until it's too late. Last one, multitasking, the art of doing twice as much as you should, half as well as you could. This idea here. And here, here's the fun, there's something about us, the reason we're drawn to those, because there's something in the human heart that kind of recognizes we aren't smart enough. We aren't good enough. And a lot of times people don't like us. You know, like we, we need to release that idea and acknowledge, man, it's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus Christ. I'm not good enough. I, I'm never going to achieve that. And so in that, part of that important message that was going out was to tell them Man, you need to let go of human effort. Love the quote by Dallas Willard. This is a, a powerful one. God's address is at the end of your rope. When you get to the end of your rope, you will find God. And isn't that the truth? That human effort has to be rid of and, and rooted out in our life. And look at the response to that. It says that churches were strengthened and they increased in number daily. They daily increased because the gospel, when it's presented in its truest, appropriate form, is a beautiful message that every soul longs for. For us, when we're shedding and getting rid of kind of uh, our, our junk, that's part of the surrender is human effort. Continuing with another surrender area, it says in verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. We'll stop there just for a second, because this is a, I'll admit, when I first read this, and I'm kind of, each week kind of working through these texts, I was like, what in the world is going on here? Like, what, what's happening here? It's a very interesting section. When you think about Paul, Paul's a very, remember we talked about this last week, very mission-driven. Like, he's all about whatever it takes to get the word out and be as strategic as possible. Well, the logical area, based on where they're located, the next step that would have made the most sense was to head into Asia, which would be present-day Turkey. Strategically, that's where Ephesus was, and if they're going to make a strategic march, that was where they needed to head next. So for Paul, this was probably hard to accept. Hard to accept a bunch of no's that says that Jesus did not allow them. We don't exactly know what that looked like, if that was like frozen or just obstacles. or We, we don't know what that looked like. But either way, 
for some reason, unbeknownst to, to, to the team, the new little uh, group that's going out, that Jesus stopped them from heading into Turkey, into northern Turkey. You're like, why in the world would he do that? I think that, when we're talking about surrender, is an important topic. How about this idea of surrendering understanding? When you have to say, God, you don't make any sense right now, but I'm just going to trust you and that you know what you're doing. Isn't that the hard part? Anybody else have a hard time with that? I'll, I'll admit that. When things, from a logical human standpoint, you're like, man, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. So a lot of times people just blaze right on past this and miss all that God could have in store if they actually listened and were obedient. Read a powerful story this past week from uh, Beth Moore. I wanted to share it with you if that's all right. It takes a couple minutes to read. But this is Beth Moore. She tells about the time she was waiting for a flight to North Carolina to speak. She says, I was sitting down in a crowded terminal when I saw, saw an old man that everyone happened to be staring at. He was the oddest sight. He looked very, very old. His pants looked like he had lost lots of weight because they were super baggy. The strangest part of him was his hair and nails. Stringy gray hair hung well over his shoulders and down part of his back. His fingernails were long, clean, but strangely out of place on an old man. I looked down at my Bible as fast as I could. I had walked with God long enough to see the handwriting on the wall. I knew that God was going to ask me to move and do something, and it, and it may be embarrassing. I immediately began to resist because I could feel God working on my spirit. I started arguing with God in my mind. Oh, no, God, pl God, please, no. There I sat begging with Jesus. Please don't make me witness to this man. Not now. I'll do it on the plane. Then I heard it. I don't want you to witness to him. I want you to brush his hair. Hmm. The words were so clear, my heart leapt into my throat, brush his hair. I looked straight back up at the ceiling and said, God, as I live and breathe, I am ready to witness to this man. I am on this Lord. He says, I'm your girl. You've never seen a woman witness to a man faster in your life. What difference does it make if his hair is a mess and if he's not redeemed? I am on him. I am going to witness to this man. Again, as, I, as clearly as I've ever heard an audible word, God seemed to write this statement across the wall of my mind. That is not what I said, Beth. I don't want you to witness to him. I want you to go and brush his hair. I looked up at God and said, I don't have a hairbrush. <laughs> it's in my suitcase on the plane. How am I supposed to brush his hair without a hairbrush? God was so insistent that I almost involuntarily began to walk towards him as these thoughts came to me from God's word. I will thoroughly furnish you for all good works. I knelt down in front of the man and asked softly as possible, sir, may I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? He looked back at me and said, what did you say? <laughs> Quietly, I said, may I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? To which he responded in volume 10, little lady, if you expect me to hear you, you're going to have to talk louder than that. <laughs> At this point, I took a deep breath and blurted out, sir, may I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? At which point, every eye in the terminal darted right at me. I watched him look up at me with absolute shock on his face and say, if you really want to, 
are you kidding? Of course I didn't want to, but God didn't seem interested in my personal preference right about then. He pressed on my heart until I could utter the words, yes, sir, I'd be pleased, but I have one little problem. I don't have a hairbrush. I have one in my bag, he responded. I ran around on the back of his wheelchair. I got on my hands and knees and unzipped the stranger's old carry-on, stood up and started brushing the old man's hair. It was perfectly clean, but it was tangled and matted. Miraculous thing happened to me as I started brushing that old man's hair. Everybody else in the room disappeared. There was no one alive for those moments except that old man and me. I brushed and brushed and brushed until every tangle was out of that hair. I know this sounds so strange, but I've never felt that kind of love for another soul in my entire life. His hair was finally as soft and smooth as an infant's. I slipped the brush back in the bag, went around the chair to face him. I got down on my knees, put my hands on his knees and said, Sir, do you know my Jesus? And he said, Yes, I do. Well, that figures. He explained, I've known him since I, was, since I married my bride. She wouldn't marry me until I got to know the Savior. He said, you see, the problem is, is I haven't seen my bride in months. I've had open heart surgery and she's been too ill to come and see me. I was sitting here thinking to myself, what a mess I must be for seeing my bride. Only God knows how often he allows us to be part of a divine moment when we're completely unaware of the significance and details only he could have known. The airline's hostess returned from the corridor, tears streaming down her cheeks. She said, that old man sitting on the plane sobbing, why did you do that? What made you do that? I said, do you know Jesus? He can be the bossiest thing. <laughs> and I got to share Jesus with the airline hostess. I learned something about God that day. He didn't send me to that old man. He sent that old man to me. That was a powerful, beautiful story of sometimes the things we're called to make zero sense from human perspective. Can you imagine? Go brush that old person's man's hair in the terminal. I've never met him. Like that, that, That's the invitation that he calls us to. And we miss so often if we're going to cling on and feel like we have to know and we have to get it what he's up to. I, lo I love the, the expression, we can't expect to understand everything God is doing when he tells us he surpasses all understanding. Why would we expect to get it if he tells us in advance we're not going to get it? He eventually, which is powerful, sometimes it's not, uh, it's, it's not a no, it's a later. It's the fascinating thing is that later on, Paul was sent to that region in Turkey where he started the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossia, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira. It wasn't because God was saying never, he was saying just in my timing. For those of us in the room that are in the middle of something that you're like, it makes zero sense why I'm going through this. Find hope that you have a God that's reigning over all of it. He has a plan. He has, he, he's, he's got your best interest in mind. I like how Corey Tin Boom puts it, never be afraid to trust an uncertain future with a certain God. Surrendering our understanding. Last one, we'll end with this, verse eight. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought, that's where Luke enters into the story, to go on into Macedonia, Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We can't have a conversation about surrender without a little bit of a conversation about surrendering our plans, right? Surrender, turn, turning over the, the day timer, turning over the, the, the calendar, turning over the, the five-year plan. That's part of what surrender looks like. And here's the, the amazing thing, is that this has always been how God's operated all through Acts. The Spirit driving the ship. He's driving this because he's got a master plan in all of this. Think about it. If you've noticed in Acts already, Philip was directed by the Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch. Peter was sent to reach the Roman centurion Cornelius. Then the Lord instructed Ananias to visit the newly converted Saul. Paul and Barnabas were directed by the Holy Spirit to go on the first missionary journey. And now, again, he's directing the route. You start to see a trend that there's a God that actually has a plan. Isn't that encouraging, just in and of itself, that there's a God reigning over all of this, and he wants to use us if we'll submit to his plan. We also see, I thought this was fascinating, I'll just point to it quickly, is that the entire Trinity was involved in this plan. Verse 6, it says the Holy Spirit keeps them from going to South Asia. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them to go to north. And then here, in verse 10, a vision from God tells them to go to Macedonia. He's very, very involved in this. I love this is also important to, to understand is often when God's telling us to go do something, he's very clear on the what, a little vague on the why. Anybody notice that before? This wasn't like they're wondering. He has this vision, where should we go next? It's a guy wearing a Macedonia t-shirt saying, come to Macedonia. You know what I mean? Like how clear, I don't know about the t-shirt part, but you get the idea. God isn't about keeping things vague on the what, but he is a little vague often on the why. What we're pushed to do is to trust and to follow. They immediately, I love that word, immediately, once it's been made clear, they act on it. And they head into this new region. Macedonia would be present-day Greece, which would be the entry point, first entry point into all of Europe. Anybody of European descent? Anybody glad that the missionaries headed that direction? Yes, I'm very thankful for that. And so here is a story of these guys being pushed to submit to God's better plan, bigger plan that they didn't see a picture of in the first place. We were on an elders retreat a couple weeks ago and we were talking about uh, the opportunity. We're like, you know, it'd be neat to hear more stories and testimonies from even in our body of Christ of examples of submitting or, or God's work in somebody's life. And so as this last story I'm going to leave you with is kind of a, a fun one. We've invited Stephanie Aite to come up. She's going to read a story about her aunt and uh, then we'll wrap up just right after that. Let's welcome her again. Oh. That's a, there you go. Okay. So my Aunt Judy and Uncle Pat have 12 kids. Um, 12 kids. Of children. <laughs> uh, they have huge, huge hearts for Jesus and live it practically in their lives through loving their children. Ten out of the 12 are adopted. They have fostered well over 50 kids, and they also work with an organization that would call her when women who were in prison would have children, and then she would take them for a time to, until they could go into the foster care system. 
My aunt um, was recently sharing with me a story of surrendering her plans to the Lord through a very difficult time. 14 years ago, you know when people don't tell you these things until like, you ask them. <laughs> 14, I was like, what? 14 years ago, her two-year-old son, Matthew, passed away in a drowning accident. It was a very, very difficult um, time and trying season of loss and hurt. She told the Lord right then, if you need me to adopt again, I will, but I can't take a baby that's terminal. I just can't lose another child. Two months later, she got a call from Tom, the man who worked with the prison ministry, and he said, Judy, I have a baby who needs a safe home until we can find somewhere else for her to go. She was born yesterday. Her mom just got out of prison. The hospital wants the baby gone, and the woman has three other children that have all been taken from her. My Aunt Judy felt like he wasn't telling her the whole story, and she said, Tom, I feel like you aren't telling me something. Tom said, Judy, the baby's HIV positive. He continued to talk to her, but my aunt said that in that moment, she immediately began to talk to the Lord, telling him, I I told you I can't take the baby that is terminal. I cannot lose another one. No sooner did she voice her fear and concern to the Lord, and he spoke so loud and clear, and she said it was like matter-of-fact statement. Um, The Lord said to my aunt, I'm taking care of your child. You need to take care of mine. Um, My aunt told Tom she would take the baby. She had to go back to the hospital to have the baby's blood drawn every week for the first few months, and then once a month after that. On the 12-month checkup, they had her blood drawn, and the nurse came back into the room and said they'd have to do it again. After they had taken the blood a second time, the nurse came back with the doctor and said they have no explanation of why, but the test came back all clear. My cousin is now 13 years old and still HIV-free. This just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, it was a miracle, but only came when my aunt was obedient and surrendered her plans to the Lord. When the Lord says he has a plan for you, he's not kidding. He knows, knows what's going to happen and in what order. That's awesome. I, I think sometimes we think that these stories are all just like God's greatest hits back then. You know, what I, what, I, what I love is that when we actually step out and say, you know what, I'm going to try this out myself. What, what does surrender look like in my own life? And, and sometimes people are just like, I don't really feel like God calls me to do things like that. Here's a couple questions just to wrap up our time and things to maybe ask yourself. Is there something in your life where he's already asked you to do something and you haven't done it yet? And you're wondering why he never speaks to you or invites you to do new things. And so maybe the first question that you have, is there something that's still pending that he's asked you to do? And maybe a second question as we're talking about surrender as it relates to this is maybe the second question is this. Are you ever quiet enough to actually hear his voice? Could he break through to you even if he wanted to? Is there enough margin in your life where you've positioned yourself to hear from him? All of these things on the other side of surrender, I would suggest, is the abundant life that he's called us to. And it's way better than Hawaii. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your patience with all of this as we try to figure this out, God. I pray that you would nudge each one of us. I think when we're talking through these topics, I know for me personally, there's different ones that seem to be more elevated than others. I pray that each one of us would maybe even take a little step towards further submission, even going into the week ahead 
Or maybe even, God, if we could ask that dangerous question, God, what do you want us to do? What do you want me to surrender next? You might even respond to that, God. We praise you so much for your goodness and the life that you invite us to. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, a couple things uh, just as we're leaving today. Just one, if you would like to be prayed for this morning about anything at all, we have a couple volunteers up here this morning for that. And then secondly, man, just a practical takeaway. What if this week you started with that simple prayer, God, what do you want me to surrender? I'm confident he could maybe direct in that area. What do you think? As it relates to surrender, though, moms, as you're leaving today, or actually any ladies in the room, we're handing out dark chocolate bars as a gift to you. You do not need to surrender those. Hang on to them. Keep them. Enjoy. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day.